You are listening to Rights Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Sophie, the producer of Rights Up. In this episode, we are exploring some of the key themes in Professor Sandra Fredman's monograph, Discrimination Law, the new third edition of which was published by the Oxford University Press in December 2022. Sandra Fredman, FBA, KC, is a professor of the laws of the British Commonwealth and the USA at Oxford University, a fellow of Pembroke College, Oxford, and director of the Oxford Human Rights Hub. Today, she is joined by three of the most prominent voices in discrimination law from the UK, Canada, and India. Thank you so much to this wonderful panel for joining me today to discuss the third edition of my book, Discrimination Law. As you know, the nature of the book, the nature of the series is to address the subject thematically rather than being a comprehensive textbook about discrimination law. And its real background objective is to highlight the very complex issues which appear when we try and address the deep inequalities in society through law and set out the range of responses in a way which is accessible but also sophisticated and which aims to give material for further thought and exploration. So I'm very privileged that you've all agreed to join me in discussing the book and having this conversation. You've all been deeply immersed in the development of equality law in your jurisdictions. Justice Rosalia Bella uh, as a justice in the Supreme Court of Canada, Helen Mountfield Casey, who is the leading barrister in the UK on equality law, as well as in the EU and ECHR, Jaina Katari, who is a senior barrister and also a leading barrister in India on the development of equality law, as well as being an activist for more comprehensive equality legislation in India. So I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. So I'm going to start with the first theme, which is the comparative approach. And this has been developing and deepening through the various editions of discrimination law, so that in the third edition, there is a wide um, comparative approach which looks at three jurisdictions from the global north, the United States, Canada and the UK, as well as the EU, and two from the global south, India and South Africa. Um, And the reason for the comparative approach is that so many challenges for lawmakers and courts in these different jurisdictions are similar. And we've also seen increasing cross-pollination of the different concepts. So a good example is indirect discrimination or disparate impact, which started off in the United States um, and Canada as well, and then traveled across the the Atlantic to the UK, where it was uh, put into statutory form and then crossed over into the European Union and then crossed back. And now very recently has been included into Indian law through the jurisprudence of the Indian Supreme Court. And we could say the same for disability, the social model, LGBTQI rights and so on. But the challenge is that once it reaches the different terrain, it often develops very differently, despite being the same concept and at least worded similarly. 
So, um, for example, equal pay is another example where we know that the gender pay gap is pervasive across all societies, but the legal responses are very different. Whereas equal value is now well established in the EU and UK, comparable worth is hardly accepted in the US. Um, South Africa and India are still developing their jurisprudence on this. And Canada is way ahead largely due to your efforts, uh, Justice Abella, the incredible work you did in your report all those years ago. So I wonder then whether you would like to start, uh, Rosie, on talking about whether you think comparative experience is helpful in the development of discrimination law. For example, the Canadian law was very influential in the development of equality law in South Africa when the constitution was drafted. So I wonder whether you could kick us off by giving us your reflections on how you feel comparative law may be helpful, but also may have um, set up some obstacles. Thank you, Sandra. First, can I tell you how honored I am to be part of this panel and, and to be participating in something under your direction. I think your, your third uh, edition, like your other writing has been so helpful to me. And as you know, if you've had um, familiarity with our cases, I often cite you because you are so accessible in, um, in the complex areas you address and you make them available to people like me um, and scholars everywhere in how to think about this. So thank you for that. Uh, and I really enjoyed, I, I must say, I skimmed through the book and the comparative approach you took. I found it so interesting and it, it actually helps me address your first question, which is the role of comparative law. I am 110% uh, committed to the idea that we all have something to learn from each other. And I think most Western judges, um, Western democratic judges have benefited from the judicial conversations we have with each other and have learned from each other, notwithstanding the fact that our cultures are different, but really, I mean, human rights is a problem everywhere, um, disability rights, gender, all of that. So we also have in Canada in section one, our very first section of the charter, uh, and it bears repeating that in 1982, when we constitutionally protected rights in Canada, it transformed the whole legal environment that we were in. But the very first section says that the rights are uh, rights and freedoms are guaranteed subject only to such reasonable limits as prescribed by law and can be demonstrably justified in a free and, direct and um, democratic society, which is an exhortation to courts to look elsewhere in other free and democratic societies for assistance, guidance, uh, reflection on dealing with whether or not rights can be limited. So that's number one, we are in a constitutional environment where we are required uh, to use comparative law. Let me tell you how I found it helpful um, in the 1984 report on equality and employment. When the government set this up in 1983, it was to determine whether there should be affirmative action in Canada because women's groups largely had been clamoring for legislative protection as the Americans had had. And the government, I think, used, I don't know that you, ha you have commissions of inquiry in other jurisdictions, 
I think this was their way of saying, maybe we can clear this issue from our file by giving it to somebody to look at. So they gave me the mandate one year uh, to look at barriers to employment for women, indigenous people, persons with disabilities and visible minorities, non-whites. And it was a report on equality and employment. So the first task was deciding what does equality mean to me? And I spent three months writing it, one month on what does equality mean? Because I looked everywhere to find out what equality means. And the only jurisdiction that had actually interpreted the provision in a court was the United States in the 14th Amendment. And you know that there's a cascade of post-World War II modern constitutions. And Germany had certainly been in place when Canada uh, introduced the 1982 charter, but that's it. We had nowhere else to look and Germany hadn't really developed its equality jurisprudence. So all I had was the 14th Amendment. It was very instructive. I read every case on the 14th Amendment that had ever been decided, but I went way back to Aristotle and Plato and, and moved through Hobbes Law, uh, Mill, Hume, all of those to get a sense of what the concept was. And I have to tell you that by reading the 14th Amendment jurisprudence, which is Aristotelian, treat likes alike, similarly situated, um, including in their uh, ultimate equality uh, triumph, Brown versus Board, it was all about treating people the same. And I had just traveled across the country meeting with these four groups and it was clear to me that what they were experiencing was exclusion and disadvantage based on the fact that they weren't the same. And so by comparing uh, what was going on in the United States, this is Isaiah Berlin's aphorism. There's no pearl without some irritation in the oyster. By reading things I didn't agree with, I found myself having to think about what did I think equality meant? And that's where I used the voices of the people I had met, all of my reading, and thought, no, we have to have a new paradigm. And the paradigm I came up with was, you can't have equality unless you acknowledge and accommodate people's differences so they can be treated as equals. And they have to be able to enter the mainstream based on those differences rather than the pretense of having them obliterated. So it's the distinction between the American melting pot, color blindness, which will get us into the affirmative action discussion versus Canada's approach, which I thought was much more, should be integration based on difference. Assimilation if you can, but integration based on who you are. I think that model has made us the best practitioners of multiculturalism in the world because we're not uncomfortable with the hyphen. You can be an Italian Canadian, you can be any kind of Canadian, as long as those core national values are protected, keep your identity. So in all of the jurisprudence that um, our court has considered, we have looked to other jurisdictions and increasingly the European Court of Human Rights, your court, Sandra, we look to India, we look to South Africa, we look to Israel. We look all over to see if we can get some ideas. Um, but equality came not from those jurisdictions. It came from the only comparator I had, which was the Americans. And it made me very, very committed to not adopting that. Let me make a final point because I'm interested in engaging. The jurisprudence, the equality jurisprudence came from the human rights jurisprudence. 
And I found great comfort in the Griggs decision, which of course you reference extensively in your book, which was to me the start of the concept of systemic discrimination. And if you look at the Canadian equality jurisprudence, it is based on the anti-discrimination model. They are integrated concepts. And we borrow freely from the jurisprudence of the Canadian Supreme Court on human rights law and anti-discrimination law in the development of equality law. So there isn't a distinct silo for discrimination and then another one for equality. They are an integrated approach to treating people um, with respect, with dignity, based on who their differences, based on identity. Now that, we can get into that discussion. You know that's anathema to Americans. Uh, but it's the only way to move forward on addressing the disadvantage that comes from difference. Well, thanks so much for um, for that r really helpful perspective from the Canadian side. So, Helen. Well, I, I very much agree with Rosie that I think your book and your teaching are part of what's um, established more of a comparative approach because people from different jurisdictions meet through that and talk and compare ideas, and it's a great way to do it. So congratulations on the book. But I think... It is helpful um, as a litigator to use the approach from other jurisdictions and the way different legal systems approach common problems, because I think the analytical frameworks are often helpful reading across slightly different ways of analysing a problem are, are helpful ways of identifying the principles which underpin the fundamental rights that we're all trying to get at. And so I also agree with Rosie that it's really useful to make comparisons between a, a human rights framework and, and an equality law framework. And I think those underpinning um, ideas are fundamental rights to equal dignity and worth and e equality before the law. And those are central to a, a universal conception of, of human rights. And I think if you do that, then you can get across some of the quite difficult technical black letter ways in which different legislatures have, have articulated that principle and, and kind of stop getting tied into the weeds and look at the picture. And I was thinking, about this um, and an example of that, which was a case I, I argued in 2008 um, as junior counsel for a Welsh Sikh schoolgirl called Sarika Watkins Singh, who wasn't allowed to wear her kara, her Sikh religious bracelet to school because there was a school uniform law that said you can't wear jewelry apart from a wristwatch and start earrings to school. And it applied to everybody. So the question was whether it was indirect discrimination on grounds of her ethnicity um, and one question was the comparator group and the school said this isn't discrimination anyone who might want to wear jewelry with emotional significance it might be your grandmother's necklace whatever else it is that rule applies to everyone no one can wear this jewelry however emotionally significant it may be um, but we relied on case law from the european court of human rights dh and the czech republic to say that the comparator group wasn't anyone else who fancied wearing jewelry for whatever reason but um, the group where the application of the rule didn't affect their ethnicity, didn't affect that element of their identity at all. Um, and it was also useful, that case, because the judge said that protecting diversity, we weren't looking at, are we making special a special case for special treatment for this person? Um, what we're looking at is, is uh, respect for diversity, which is something of fundamental use and value to the community as a whole. So it, it's the framing of the question in that way that I think is helpful. And then the other thing that was really useful um, in that case was uh, that it followed a number of cases about quite um, extreme 
Muslim dress in schools, girls choosing to cover themselves completely or first families wanting them to cover themselves completely. And we could distinguish this case by using a case from the South African Constitutional Court called Pillay, which was about a Tamil girl who wanted to wear a, a nose stud to school. And again, there was a probably colonial era uniform policy about what was acceptable jewellery, which was no earrings, but not a nose stud. And the Constitutional Court there said, well, what's the problem here? You know, you're, you're saying, oh, other people want to do it too, but what's so frightening about diversity? It's not a parade of horribles. We have to look at why you would stop someone doing something. So it shifts, you know, you can start to look at other ways of shifting the framework from what is the current way the majority expect to be treated? Can you make an exception to we're, we're trying to promote and value diversity unless there's a good reason not to. And I think it's really helpful. Thank you. And, and, and what about you, Jaina, because you've been advocating for a comprehensive equality statute in India, which has been lacking, and you've modelled it on the Equality Act 2010 from the UK. So have you found that comparativism is, is helpful in your practice and in, in your advocacy as well, in terms of the ways in which you understand the transposition of concepts from one jurisdiction to another? No, certainly. Uh, comparative work in the Indian context has always been uh, very strongly used. Um, our courts have actually, uh, you know, from the beginning been very, very open to uh, to use of comparative jurisprudence. And, you know, before I go into uh, quality legislation, just to uh, kind of join in on what some of the others said, um, you know, in our, our Supreme Court on equality uh, principles has you know, like Canada, borrowed very, very heavily initially from the U.S. Uh, on its race and 14th Amendment decisions, uh, but also very strongly from the U.K. and, you know, principles of proportionality and, uh, you know, reasonableness, which have found their way into the early Indian, um, um, you know, Supreme Court jurisprudence on equality. And recently, in some of the, uh, you know, later decisions, uh, we borrowed very heavily on disability equality, you know, looking at re issues around reasonable accommodation, indirect discrimination. So we've had a very rich comparative approach. And in my work around equality legislation, we've relied heavily on looking at the Equality Act um, in the UK because it has taken into account many of uh, these concepts. You know, indirect discrimination wasn't something that our courts had relied on. We did use substantive equality and we kind of uh, made a much richer uh, kind of definition of it. Uh, but we hadn't used terms like reasonable accommodation or indirect discrimination. And a lot of that, uh, we found that while uh, looking at uh, an equality legislation for India, we found the UK, we found, uh, you know, many of these principles very, very useful. And also, I think the concept of intersectionality, how do we look at multiple protected grounds uh, and look at identities which are often intersecting? And I think some of these conversations have made their way back to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court has also recognized some of these uh, experiences of discrimination. And so, yes, the, uh, you know, the comparative approach has been extremely helpful in India. So thank you. So we can see that from all your jurisdictions, a comparative approach is helpful. But on the other hand, equality law does need to respond to the particular social context. As you said, Rosie, the voices that you heard from Canada um, and the book also tries very hard to put 
the different social struggles, the different historical development into context in terms of the way in which, if, even if you do borrow or import concepts from different jurisdictions, they may take root in a different way or grow in a different way in order to respond to the particular context or potentially, if they ignore the context, may not develop in that way. So um, one of the things that comes out from chapters two and three of the book is how in different contexts, uh, different parts of discrimination law develop. So for India, the key motivation has been caste. In the US, um, it was clearly race. In, in the US, Black Americans were a minority. In South Africa, race was actually a majority issue. And then gender has been very central in, um, in Canada, in the EU, um, and other aspects such as language and ingenuity in, in Canada have also been very salient. So I wonder whether having talked about the importance of comparativism, where you feel that the social, political, historical context of your jurisdiction would affect your work in practice, in litigating, in adjudicating, and generally in the way in which discrimination law has developed in your jurisdiction. Um, so maybe do you want to kick off Jaina? Because in some ways, India is more different in its trajectory than, than any of the other jurisdictions. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Andy. Um, yes, India has been very different because in many ways, our Supreme Court's jurisprudence has not been discrimination focused. Um, it's looked at equality uh, from a substantive equality uh, standpoint. And uh, most of our decisions, especially around caste, have been around reservations and affirmative action. And and interestingly, the language of reservation is uh, is rooted in our constitution. Uh, we have specific articles under Articles 15 and 16, which provide for reservations. Um, and so the way that the Indian um, uh, Supreme Court has moved is, is strengthening and looking at uh, decisions which all focused around reservations in the context of caste. Uh, we don't um, have... Uh, you know, the strong language of discrimination in the context of caste. Um, and that has been, I think, uh, that's something that I've been writing about uh, to, to question uh, this unique development of equality law in the Indian context. Um, and so we've looked at uh, reservations as equal opportunity. Um, and uh, we've had provisions uh, in the constitution which make provisions for affirmative action uh, for people uh, on the basis of their scheduled caste status and scheduled tribe status, and also developing the uh, backward castes uh, kind of uh, definition and framework. And so reservations has been the model. Uh, but I also think that, so while that has been the unique perspective uh, in the Indian context, um, the way you raised the issue of, uh, you know, the context uh, often define, you know, determining the outcomes. Uh, if we look at a comparative focus, uh, you know, in India, we recently had um, a big litigation around marriage equality. And a lot of uh, our work was very comparative focused. We looked at 
uh, recent American decisions um, on marriage equality. We looked at a lot of the EU decisions on marriage equality. And uh, while those principles and concepts were useful, uh, ultimately we lost. And I think there the context played a big role. Um, and perhaps uh, the context in India where civil partnership was not yet uh, an issue that was taken up, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, the, the, the questions around uh, equality uh, in the context of marriage was uh, therefore not rooted in our uh, Indian experience. So, um, so yeah, just a few thoughts. Thank you. What about you, Rosie? Do you feel that the social context, the political context is important to incorporate into decision-making about the development of discrimination law as much as looking elsewhere and comparativism? That's, that really is the core of the question that in my judicial lifetime in the 45 years that I was judging, I saw the strongest evolution um, in thought, in social context thought. So um, the legislature gave us the charter in 1982, the first decade, because we had people like Bertha Wilson and Claire Lewitt Bay and Brian Dixon, uh, was very bold and very muscular. And the public was really happy. I don't know. Nobody on the court took a poll. Nobody measured the, the pulse of the public, but the public cheered when they, for the first time really in its history, because our constitution had been a division of powers constitution before. And when, when it did have the chance to develop rights, I would say wasn't raising the flag very, very uh, robustly. So it was very strong. And then in the 90s, this is this is all public opinion from what you read in the press, because courts don't take polls. We don't know what people thought. Um, there was a resistance to the very um, aggressive rights protection that had occurred in the first decade. That's because the world had become much more conservative. But the court didn't embrace the social change, it stuck with the trajectory towards ever increasing protection of rights. And then things kind of calmed down. And I think there is now an awareness that legislatures in most jurisdictions in the liberal democratic model exist to respond to majoritarian urgings because the consequences of not doing that are you lose your job as a politician. But Courts are independent and have either term limits or age limits in everywhere except in the United States. And so you have the independence to be objective. I don't know what the word neutral means, but certainly to be objective and to be unpopular. So the question of what does public opinion mean comes in there because we don't know. First of all, I don't know who the public is. I mean, I know who I know in the public, I know what I read, but newspapers have their own perspectives as well. So it raises a very interesting question about the role of the courts when you say, what about public opinion? But in the area of rights protection, if you wait for the public to decide that it's okay now to protect pay equity, now it's okay to introduce uh, childcare, now it's okay to bring in um, more consideration for um, people who are who dress differently, who who have different linguistic bases. 
um, for joining the mainstream. If you wait for that, you are you are going to be waiting a long time. I mean, the United States, to whom I think it must be said, very few jurisdictions look for constitutional rights protection guidance anymore. I would say since about the 80s, early 80s, we've stopped looking there because they're so sclerotic in their approach to rights. They had been so... Um, so inspiring in the in the Warren court era, and then they just kind of shriveled up. So we don't look there anymore. But it's a very interesting example of why you have to be wary of attaching the legitimacy of a court to public opinion. Assisted dying, we we changed a precedent that was twenty five years old because we had a very good trial decision looking at different evidence. But we didn't we didn't put our finger up and say, are the winds with us? I mean, we did it because it was argued that it was an important change. Um, everything we've done has been based on the facts and the evidence, which may include some public opinion through interveners. Uh, we know what the government thinks because they're a party to all of this. But really, you have to ask yourself, um, to what extent is public opinion relevant? And when I say it's irrelevant, you only have to look at the United States to know that my paradigm, that, which I've just told you, courts protect minority interests that cannot receive majority approval, it's upside down in the United States. So even that model isn't working very well in the United States, but I think it still does work well. And I saw it play out in the India case on, on uh, gay rights where they seem to suggest, and, and Gina, you can, you can tell me if I'm wrong, this is for the legislature. They weren't prepared to go where uh, they weren't sure the public would approve. Uh, and to me, that was sad because that's what courts do. They have to go where the legislatures cannot in order to advance the protection of rights. That's our job as judges. And there's no doubt that we are in a yin yang with the legislature. And there's no doubt that we're in a kind of partnership with the legislature. They're not out of the business of protecting rights, but we are, as Brian Dixon said, the guardians of the constitution. And that means the guardians of the rights. And if we become anemic in the way we see ourselves or too deferential to the legislature because the majority will be, will be upset, we have a duty to be unpopular if we think it's the right thing to do. So it this, this question that you raise is really fundamental to what courts are supposed to do in the protection of rights. Nobody goes crazy when we write copyright decisions. I mean, maybe the copyright bar, but that's just, that's formalistic. That private law is so much fun and it's so easy because there are rules and, and it's the development of common law and it's over time. Rights protect, constitutional rights protection is, is robust if it's going to work at all. And I, I mean, I think it's the most important thing that courts do, uh, protect, protect rights, because it's the last place people who can't get legislative resonance can go in order to have their rights protected. And here's the other thing I think we have to remember. I used to hear all the time, um, you know, give it time, it will change, attitudes will change, and then behavior changes. Well, in the meantime, you can't get abortions. In the meantime, you can't marry the people you love. You can't exercise the, the sexual 
identities that you have. So what exactly are we waiting for? Like a unanimous approval or a majority say, okay, we're ready now to give these rights. So I think the most important thing to remember is when you change behavior, you change attitudes. And it's a much faster way of changing attitudes. And it happened in Canada. The first gay rights decision, I remember because I was all over the papers, was a case involving at the Court of Appeal, the first appellate decision, again, based on a very good decision, trial decision, the anal intercourse provision for teenagers, 14 to 18. And I struck it down with unanimously, a panel of three, and the public reaction was vociferous. Three years later, I wrote the next gay rights decision on pension benefits. This time, people had had three years to think about it, I think, I don't know. I mean, I just speculating. And people were saying, yes, of course, we read in the phrase uh, or same sex benefits because you could only leave pension benefits to opposite sex. Nothing. It was the editorials everywhere were, of course, three years later. So you start conversations with your decisions, you change behavior with your decisions. And if we're playing catch up with public opinion, that's a mugs game. We can't do that. We are the only people in the liberal democratic piece who act as checks and balances other than the media and the media aren't accountable in the same way. So we're accountable to the public interest. Uh, we will be judged by history, uh, but we are not accountable to the majority. Yeah, Jaina. Yeah, I just want to jump in, um, you know, taking off from where, uh, you know, Rosie spoke about. I think another area where in India, the you know, the courts changed the law on equality was in the context of sexual harassment um, at the workplace. And, you know, it was, uh, we didn't have a law. Uh, in the 90s, there was a, there was a gruesome incident where a government worker was uh, brutally gang raped uh, at work for uh, trying to stop child marriage. And uh, this was taken up to the Supreme Court as a serious case of uh, violation of women's equal rights at work and the right to work with equality and dignity. And the court took it up and uh, framed guidelines without legislation. And at that time, sexual harassment, you know, the only uh, area of equality even considered was equal pay, um, which also was not really being followed. But there was no recognition of sexual harassment at work. And that completely changed that decision um, of even the recognition that women have the right to work with equality and dignity completely changed the game uh, for women's rights um, as equal citizens. And yes, it's, you know, now... Almost 20 years later, we are facing a fair amount of backlash on this issue, but it is here to stay. Um, sexual harassment at work has been recognized, and all of that came because of um, court-related initiatives and not, you know, the, the legislation came almost 10 years after the decision. So if we had waited for parliament, it may not have happened even then. Yeah. And I think one of the, you know, I come from a very small C conservative jurisdiction. We don't have a written constitution that gives judges cover for what they do. And the Human Rights Act says they can only make declarations. And there is a huge political movement at the moment attacking so-called activist lawyers and activist judges, starting with 
European Court of Human Rights judges and European Court of Justice judges, but now we've left the EU, moving on to um, national judges as well. So I think our judiciary is quite cautious about this. On the other hand, I do think, and I, and I think, you know, social change is a funny thing. I think the law and the way people think has a symbiotic relationship. And I, I've seen that with people in older generations than me who, as things like gay marriage come in, change their attitudes to sexuality. They examine the prejudices they were brought up with and reconsider them. But I'm just thinking we had um, civil partnership uh, legislation in this country. Um, and, and then there was a challenge to that using the Human Rights Act well, lots of challenge to that, but some women who were married in Canada who said we want our marriage to be recognised as a marriage in the UK, not as a civil partnership. We regard that as lesser. So using um, the right uh, to marriage in the European Convention on Human Rights and the right to equal protection in Article 14, they said we would like this marriage to be recognised in the UK. And the court said no, there has been a big um, political conversation in the UK. Churches have weighed in, other people have weighed in. And we have settled on recognizing inheritance rights, all the practical incidents of marriage through civil partnership. And that is, um, we're not going to give a declaration of incompatibility. But the fact that civil partnership legislation was in place really did change social attitudes very fast. It meant that people could kind of be out and comfortable with their relationships in a, um, I suppose, a sort of established establishment way. This is my partner. Um, and then it was a conservative government that brought in um, equal marriage protection and the ability for opposite sex, sorry, same sex couples to marry. And the arguments that were used against that, it was very interesting. They're the same arguments that have been used against civil partnership, saying, but we have civil partnership. No one would argue against that. And now we do have same sex marriage. And although I think certainly there are uh, religious groups which would say we don't we don't recognize that in, in the eyes of God. Nonetheless, it has really transformed the way people um, explain their relationships. And it's, it's very much more public. So I do think those changes in the law really do make a change in social attitudes and it, they kind of, they go in lockstep. Sandra, can I weigh in for a second? Because I, I think Helen, I think they both made really important points that we have to recognize. I mean, the, the phrase activist judges uh, was something that, we borrowed from the Americans. I remember in the 90s, we had never heard the phrase and no one bothered to parse what exactly that means. I mean, is the opposite an inactive judge? And then we figured out this was really just a way to presumptively dismiss a rights increasing decision of a court. And once people figured that out, uh, that it, was a, it wasn't a genuine legitimate uh, attribution of a decision. It was just a political way of, of telling people don't take this seriously. And they stopped using that in the States after Bush v. Gore because judicial activism got them a president. So we didn't hear that anymore. But I think what also comes up in the discussion about um, the protection of gay rights and the development that Helen's talking about is that all of these rights in our generation, post-World War II uh, generation, are evolutionary. It isn't that there wasn't discrimination on the basis of uh, sexual orientation or, or sex or race or religion. It's that we hadn't come to realize in, in, in our thinking just how wrong it was to treat people differently and in an exclusionary way and not let them be who they are. And, you know, it bears repeating in England, we, you, you had the Wolfenden Report, I think 1968, 
that was very gutsy, that report. And it started a conversation. And and that carried on as people kind of latched on to um, the observations and that started the public conversation. Women's rights, I mean, every generation has had women's rights. The most recent was in the 60s when everything kind of came to the fore and we realized that the Married Women's Property Act, all of family law had been based on an assumption that women were not breadwinners and they were there to take care of the home. And then once once we allowed that to come out, then, then we insisted on, on change. Persons with disabilities, we realized if you treat them the same, they don't get a ramp. Well, they need a ramp in order to be treated as equals. And religion, you know, if you can't wear your your um, hijab or your niqab in court and you are a Muslim, that may deprive you of the chance to go to court and bring a sexual assault case. So in an evolutionary way, we have come to understand through the courage of litigants and the power of the media and the, and the importance of the legislature, as, as Helen pointed out, it's the combination of flashlights that have made us not only increasingly aware, but then given, I think, largely to the courts, in, in certainly in our jurisdiction, responsibility for addressing what those flashlights have revealed to be true. Not that they are new, we, they're not new, but we've come to realize that they are so disadvantaging that it's simply unfair and unjust to continue the barriers that have kept people out arbitrarily. So, I mean, it's over time and look what we've seen in our lifetime. Look at the rights that we've protected. In Canada, 1970, the Royal Commission on the Status of Women, wow, um, it just was a blockbuster. We also had the protection of language rights, central, had to be in Canada, part of our national identity. So this is the generation that has recognized and implemented rights protection, constitutional or otherwise, even though, Ellen, you don't have uh, a formal constitution, you have unwritten constitutional principles. Um, and you've, you've done a lot compared to what you had done in the past, I think, in the courts. Um, so, But we need to be aware that this doesn't happen overnight. And in the United States in Brown, how many decades from Plessy to Brown, 60 years, the Black population of the United States had to wait until the court said, you know, we were wrong, maybe in 1896. 60 years of segregation waiting for the court to recognize what was staring them in the face. So, you know, courts should not be slow to recognize what people not only recognize, but don't have the institutional capacity to address the way courts do. Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive producer is Megan Campbell. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sophie Smith, and hosted by Professor Sandra Fredman. Music for the series is by Rosemary Allman. Show notes have also been written by me, Sophie Smith. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favourite podcasts.